0: back to the PFC Podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast.
1: Podcast, it has been a while and today we're going to talk about traumatic wound
0: management.
1: Today I'm sitting with three other fellas and uh, how about we go around the room, introduce yourself.
0: Okay, I'm Rick Hines. I'm uh... Instructor at the SFMS Refresher Course, um, retired
2: 18 Delta. I'm John Johnson. I'm not retired, but I am in 18 Delta. I'm the Chief Instructor here at the Special Forces Medical Sergeant mm-hmm. Refresher Course. Um,
3: about 15 years before that in the 5th Special Forces Group. decent kind of amount my experience across the board. Hi, my name is Justin Rapp. I'm currently the NCOIC of the Special Operations Forces Austere Care Course. Uh, run out of the office of special warfare. Uh, I'm an 18 Delta as well.
1: Awesome. So today, what I'd like to do is go through the new wound care CPG and see if we can distill it for all its goodness. So I'd like to start off uh, with uh, Justin. You're on the one of the authors of this. When do when do you foresee people actually using the information out of this CPG, going from T-Tri-C through PFC?
3: Well, again, the approach to this CPG was absolutely in the context of a prolonged field care situation, which means that we've more or less eliminated life threats on the X. Uh, we've gone to a certain level of evacuation care to mitigate any potential future insults to, to the given injuries that we have. And now we're, we're in a clinic of some kind. Uh, we're not on the X with a lot of peripheral distractions going on. We're, we're in our clinic, we have some resources, and now we can take a good look at the wound and see what is, maybe what is simple about it, but certainly what is complex about this given wound pattern.
1: You know, how, how do you guys go about just evaluating a wound and how are you going to make your decisions going forward?
3: Uh, so the first thing I do whenever I look at a wound, uh, once I'm under some bright lights, is As I ask myself, I, I take a very close look at the cavitation because I really want to get a good picture of what that wound looks like. And, and generally speaking, in order to do that, there's you know, there's a certain analgesia um, strategy that you have to apply to that for the patient so that you can you know, so that you can manipulate the wound a little bit. Uh, certainly not grossly, but so you can see what the true damage is of a wound. Obviously, combat war wounds are complex wounds; they're, they're often not very simple. So I like to get a good in. Uh, I like to get a good analgesia protocol on board, some oral analgesia. and I'm a big fan of local. Uh, It's simple. It requires uh, significantly less equipment. Uh, Regional, I know, is coming into a lot of favor and people are getting better and better at that. Uh, I'm okay with it. Certainly with some help and some guidance, I can do that. But when we need ultrasounds and additional equipment and drugs, that starts to make it more complicated. So. In my experience, I've had a lot of success with just using local anesthesia, lidocaine, with or without epinephrine, preferably with epinephrine. And so I like to, I like to explore the wound, do some more wound exploration to see how bad it is. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm lucky and I'm fortunate, I'm the one who treated him on target or at the point of injury, so I'm able to have some context for that injury. Uh, I, I, I get some good analgesia on board. I wait till the, till the patient uh, is not feeling so much pain, and then I explore the wound to see how bad it is.
1: Okay. What are you looking for?
3: So what I'm looking for primarily is, first of all, is is gross contamination. Uh, That's the first thing I want to get out of there. I I like to wash it with soap and water, regardless of what is in there. Pull out any any, sticks, foreign bodies that I can see that are large. Pull all of those out and then wash it with a good amount of soap and water. And then I just like to see if that soap and water is getting out those splinters and those smaller pieces of, Contamination, so that I can look at the wound. I'm looking for the contamination, obviously, but I'm also looking at what damage that I've done to the tissues. So one thing I've noticed too is um, depending on what time you learned a lot about surgery and
2: and debridement as a whole. There's some mixtures of, of ways to look at it. Um, so I know that when I went through, we looked at a lot of using the irrigators, the pulse irrigators, and things like that. Um, so that's one thing I, I definitely like to talk about when I teach the course: is the uh, the avoidance of those pulse irrigations. As you're doing it, a little bit of pressure, just hand pressure using an IV bag or something is fine, but anything stronger than that, you just end up pushing those gross contaminants back into the body uh, deeper than you want to be able to have to dig them out. So that's one thing. Another thing is um, keeping in mind the, the temperature of the water. So you don't want it freezing cold, obviously, because it cause some other issues um, with the patient and it's hypothermia. but warm water is not going to be your best option either. You want that lukewarm out of the faucet type water, which is a good segue to my next piece. Right, so I know a lot of us tend to not have a large amount of fluids on us, um, but if you can drink the water, it's safe enough to irrigate with. So that's a big piece, I think, when we're talking about irrigation. And I, I agree with Justin, though. Like, the key is, identifying how big this wound really is, how deep it's going, before I really get into the the decision-making matrix of, am I going to debride this? Am I going to try to go deeper than what am I actually deal with um, and as far as assessing it the next thing you touch is your four C's so color of the material or the, uh, the tissue, the tissue itself you know you want to look at that right um, It's the least reliable so you've got issues with the fact that it's probably going to change color just due to the oxygenation. and it's going to change colors because of the, the materials you're using to clean it whether're you using betadine soap and water, um, chlorhexidine, all these things can kind of change the color a little bit. So that's really least reliable, but it's still important. Um, the contractility of the tissue itself kind of tells me a little bit more about it, um, the consistency of it, and then the uh, circulation that it, it gets. Capillary so bleeding? Yep, yeah, which is, comes to <clears throat> capillary bleeding. Like how do we know, is it getting circulation or not? It's not going to have any capillary bleeding, then I know it's, it's bad tissue and it's going to have to go. And that gives me an idea of how much I'm going to cut out before I get started.
0: Okay. So uh, you you mentioned that uh, depending on when you went through the course, um, years ago they taught P for plenty, right? When in doubt, cut it out. Uh, Now we're teaching a little more judicious uh, debridement, uh, more strict adherence to the four C's. What, uh, What I found is the sooner I do a debridement after injury, the more I end up having to debris, and the reason for that is, it takes time for that tissue to hematoma to show those signs of damage. Uh, so I I really can't tell where that line of demarcation between uh, devitalized and vitalized tissue is. So I end up having to, to, to debride a little bit more because basically, I mean, let's be realistic. We've got one one shot. If if we have to debrief again. Uh, we've made a great, grave error, and, and we've really uh, screwed up with the patient
2: and and with our resources. So uh, we want to get it right the first time. Okay. It's also going to throw off our timeline. Um, so we only have so many, so many more days we <clears throat> can wait from the point of entry to being able to actually um, conduct a delayed primary closure. Um, so if we have to go back in when we open it up um, and debride some more, now I likely will have to do secondary intent and not a delayed fiber closure, which decreases his um, ability to, to heal quickly.
0: And increases his convalescence time.
1: Right. Uh, if I can, I want to step back quick. We're talking about irrigating. So, you know, when I went through the course, we got a great big basin, and we just kept squeezing water into it until the basin was empty. How do you determine how much irrigation you need to give? Because at some point, you're now just wasting time. Right. And you're wasting some kind of
2: resource. So a good rule of thumb is three liters. That's um, what you really kind of want to start your your mindset at. Um, but what I really do is look to see what's coming out of it. So as I'm irrigating, I'm looking at the color and consistency of the the fluid as it drains back out into that basin. Um, and as it gets to a more Kool-Aid-looking, like a very pink lemonade-type color, then I know that all the bulk of the dirt and nasty is coming out, and it's... Really, more just a little bit of capillary bleeding and and fluid. And so kind of for.
0: for us, the textbook answer is one to three liters, uh, and that, that's going to depend on the size of it. I like to get my fingers in there, get all the compartments open, make sure I irrigate every every crevice that I can, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, to make sure that I didn't just push stuff back in the back there that that it's it's all coming out. I like to open it up and and look as
3: much as I can.
1: Okay. Do you have any rules of thumb as far as size to say this is a small wound, this is a large wound?
3: There, there's various, uh, when we say small, medium, large, it seems very subjective, and there's various studies out there that suggest um different sizes of wounds, and, and they tether uh, an amount of fluid to those size wounds. For us, what I believe is the most important is that we consider in an austere environment, all wounds are generally going to be contaminated with something, uh, whether we can see it, and, and more scary is what we can't see. So in terms of doing, like the book answer being one to three, some of the research I saw in, out of the Wilderness Medical Society, they have found that more than nine liters of fluid generally does not produce a better outcome. So as you work up to that grossly contaminated and or large wound, whatever we deem that, whatever we deem a large wound, uh, nine liters of fluid generally gets a good, does a good job of irrigating. Uh, and so what, what we kind of are talking about in terms of a over overall approach to wound care in an austere all- setting, I think it's important to note that what we're truly trying to do is doing a lot of infection mitigation, and the best outcome for the patient certainly is infection prevention, and from an irrigation approach is the type of fluid we're using and the pressure we're using and then how much. something maybe to mention is that additives such as iodine, bacitracin, or alcohol are not associated at all with uh, reduction in infection incidences. A very high pressure, we used to kind of think that, oh, if I can squirt a lot in there very quickly, that it'll blast that out. But anything over 15 PSI is generally regarded as potentially dangerous and pushing infection into the wound. So something in terms of, since we talk about prolonged field care, we're generally talking about an austere setting. Something that gives you a general sense of it is, is around 19 gauge, which is a rare catheter. So around a 20 gauge catheter with a 35 milliliter syringe will deliver approximately eight PSI. So you can go up or down with that. Um, like John already mentioned, we're looking at, you know, body temperature, cooler water or fluid, not something that's hot. Certainly not something that's going to damage the tissue. Uh, and then in terms of the amount we already mentioned, uh, one to three is usually a pretty good starting point and then nothing over 9 is going to do much better for you.
1: Okay. Um as far as timing goes when you decide to do a debridement, uh do you want to have resuscitation done with or do you err on the side of doing cutting it out
0: early? In in my opinion, uh surgery, debridement is a planned event. It's not an emergency. So he should be the patient should be as stable as you can get them. Uh, your your damage control resuscitation should be done. Your telemedicine, everything, and now, okay, I, I can't get this guy out. To somebody more competent. So now I'm going to plan the surgery. Now, the, this is not an emergency. You could plan it for tomorrow. It can wait. Um, you know, you've got all the life threats taken care of. Uh, you know, if you decide that sooner is better than later, because. Um, the longer you wait, the more unstable he may become. Uh, then that's that's a choice you have to make at that time. But yeah, it's not debriefing; not an emergency. Um, so it's after after
2: DCR after damage
0: control, resuscitation is complete. Yeah, basically,
2: uh, just treat it like you do a lot of other things, where you measure twice, you cut once. In this case, you you plan early and operate when appropriate. So plan for the surgery it, as soon as you know you, you will likely get into that situation. Um, So as soon as you have a patient that's going to need a department, you plan for it, simultaneously trying to find out if you can get them out of the area and somebody more qualified can do it. And if not, then you're ready and you can get into the process of doing it properly. So you're not rushing through. Mm -hmm. Um, And like Rick already said, it's not an emergency, but it is important to get those cameras out. And the other piece of that, the reason it's not as much of a rush, is there's never a contraindication for secondary intent closure-wise. So if you just took too long to get to the point where you could cut and do the debridement, you can always close by secondary intent. It just takes longer. Um, so you don't have to rush to make sure you're fitting in those proper windows to do with the lid closure.
3: Yeah, I think this absolutely speaks to the problem list development and really uh, developing that good problem list for long-term prolonged field care. And certainly, uh, you know, going categorically down your problems, you can say, uh, wound care. It can be as simple as that. If you want to break it down, wound irrigation and debridement, and then certainly a, a problem set that you have to address probably a little quickly. I completely agree with them is resuscitation and what is your plan for that and then executing that plan. Uh, the debridement and the wound care can take it's not an emergent thing as resuscitation potentially can be in the uh, long-term effects of poor resuscitation, certainly in the clinic environment.
1: I think also if you if you do a good job with your resuscitation, deciding what to cut in your debridement is going to be a lot easier. If you do a poor job resuscitating or you're barely able to achieve your uh, resuscitation goals, you're going to end up cutting a lot of tissue out that didn't need to be cut out Just because he wasn't resuscitated yet.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point because, like, circulation or, you know, the uh, capillary bleeding is one of the number one, you know, pieces that we use. And if he's more shocky or has less blood because we haven't resuscitated him, he's not going to be bleeding in those capillary pills as much as we thought he would.
0: I can tell you uh, if you wait 24 hours after a wound occurs, um, that that seems to be a really good time to, to start think about doing a debridement. Anything sooner and uh, we end up, uh, we don't get as much uh, discoloration in the tissue as we would have at the around 24 hour mark. So, I mean, that's that's not a hard and fast, that's a fluid, but uh, the, the closer you do your debridement to when he was wounded, the less you're going to be able to tell the those lines of demarcation between vitalized and devitalized tissue. So you're, you're going to end up Possibly either cutting out too much or not cutting out enough because you can't tell. So that's another reason to, yes, uh, clean the wound. By all means, dress the wound and, and do your, your uh, focus on resuscitation and then, and then take a breath and, and plan the surgery.
3: Yeah, certainly when you're debriding a wound, it's not always that wound where you have to put the patient on the surgical plane. It's, it's still a you know a minor surgery. We're still using surgical techniques on a wound. Uh, they're just not always that uh, very complicated wound where you're debating whether you're going to amputate or something like that. it. Could just be it could be a large part of meat missing out of a human being's leg that you just have to go in and clean up the, the surface area of it. And so, like like I said before, I've had great success with just local anesthesia in terms of taking care of those patients, uh, possibly with the application <clears throat> of some ketamine so that they're not thinking about it so much. I think there's absolutely a place for some morphine in this with a hemodynamically stable patient. I have an opioid that lasts a good long time for that. And when I go into debride, in the past, what I've learned is if I can get a, a great deal of the gross tissue that's been destroyed and is that is not viable out, but maybe I don't get all of it out, and I'm there taking care of my patient in a, in a prolonged field care setting, I can see him again the next day. And there's a potential for me doing a minor surgery to doing another local, uh applying another local anesthesia strategy at, to getting some of that stuff that I was questionable about. And I learned that that is actually something that you can do. Whereas when I was taught initially in the Delta course, it was really important to do the P for plenty. I come from that generation and I learned over time that I can save a lot more tissue if I just have a very measured, I kind of like that word, a very measured approach to my debridement and my wound care. Uh, we're going again get complicated. It is going to take time for that thing to heal. And also it's going to take time for me to apply quality treatment to that patient.
0: So yeah i'm glad you mentioned that because that that kind of brings into effect the, the difference in thought between an FST or a cash and uh, and what we teach in the course with the uh, the ICRC protocols or their their recommended war wound treatments and uh, so what we're looking at you know in in the course we teach the ICRC uh, version of, of war wound treatment because we feel it kind of fits more into the way we operate. So we have, uh, especially if we're working, you know, if this is a host nation patient, uh, I may not, I, I don't have the resources to uh, to house him post surgery. So I'm going to recover him and chances are I'm going to send him home. For a few days and, and have him come back in a few days and then I'll check his wound as opposed to, you know, Q 24 hour wound washout, redress or twice a day, you know, dressing change or anything like that. Uh, we just, we don't have the, the resources to do that, the manpower or anything. So that's kind of why we lean towards the ICRC model. Uh, granted, if you do have your patient that stays there with you. Um, there's nothing that says in 24 hours you can't have a pee and see how he's doing. And if he needs a little more tissue trimmed off, you can sedate him, do a regional, do a local, whatever works, and and go in there and clean it up.
2: And we have found that um, by not changing the bandage every 24 hours, we've actually drastically reduced our um, infection rate. So when we were training, I think Justin and Rick and I all trained in the same um, time frame, where we were changing bandages every day and um, we had a pretty high infection rate well, oftentimes. times and we just assessed in the beginning that we were just young we're learning we're making mistakes but as we've learned that's pro- probably partially true but the bulk of it is that we're exposing that wound to contaminants that we don't need to um, and by keeping it wrapped and closed and waiting three to five days before we do a band change uh, we've actually drastically reduced um, to a point which i think. It was 70% or higher for a long time and in the infection rate, and we've got it down to about
1: 0.2%. Really? I mean, that really comes to the important part. You know, it's one thing to say, we've, we've adopted this protocol because it fits us. That's another one to say we adopted it, and it actually is better than what we've done previously.
2: I don't want to beat everything down too hard, but before we get too far, um, as you're taking care of that wound and doing the debridement, I think it's important to remind all of us that ligating vessels is way more important than using some of the more convenient tools like electrocautery. I know that they're travelable, I know that they've shrunk down and they're easy, but by burning anything inside the body, you do increase that opportunity for infection. So if you have the skills or the time to ligate, please do so. If not, you can use electrocullery or just be careful and be measured. That's a great term um, in your decision.
1: So go after going through your debridement, now it's time to uh, dress the wounds. Dress um, what kind of dressings uh, have you found are most successful?
2: I think it's just important to start off with that nice uh, matrix. So you take you know a piece of gauze and make sure you um, have a sterile piece of gauze that you can open up all the way, so unfold it completely and it gets that nice kind of wavy look to it and then crumple it up, up almost like a loofah and you can push that into the... Uh, I don't know what a loofah is. I like that. Do you use loofahs? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I loofah myself. I, I have a loofah. You know, I have to it. explain. Basically you just want it a nice airy, fluffy um, pile of gauze that you are stuff in there and that allows the wood uh, to kind of adhere to it just enough so when it's time to take this bandage off
0: and you're you're not packing it, you're not pushing it in. It's just placed over the entirety of the wound on the surface. And then you put your bulky dressing over that. And and what we've seen, we we let it sit for about three days before we even change the dressing. And uh yeah, like I said, our, our infection rates have dropped drastically. And uh and then when we open it up, it's to make a decision. Do we need to re and let this close by secondary intent, or can we close this now? Is it infection-free, and can we close this one? So uh, an important part of that is when you peel that dressing off, when you do that, that next check, uh, you want it well-adhered to the wound. You want that granulation to have uh, formed into that matrix. And uh, one of the first things I look at, is i smell. So we tell the students there's a good bad smell and a bad bad smell. The good bad smell is the ammonia. It it is a kind of ammonia type smell. That's what you want. If it smells like rotting flesh and the bandage bandage just sloughs off and there's a bunch of goo there, well that's obviously bad. <laughs> and uh and, and now we're gonna have to do a lot more work. And uh so that's kind of what we look for when we do that, that next bandage check. And what you expect to see, if, if everything's successful, is capillary bleeding. Good, healthy capillary bleeding and nice marbled meat that you want to put on the ground.
3: I, I, I don't know if it's taking a step back or not, but in terms of doing wound management and that problemless development, I, I'm a firm believer in the problemless because that's what organizes our thought. We, we go all over the place here talking about the different prongs of wound management, but in terms of the way I approach, the way that you approach a wound is that problem list. And as soon as I see a wound, I I immediately write down wound care, pain, uh, I write down infection, and then I write down nursing care. And those are sort of the four prongs that sort of encapsulate everything that I, I know. And if I do a very diligent job at each of those categories, then I'm going to be pretty successful or as successful as I can be in terms of managing that wound. Okay.
0: No, I totally agree. You know, your nursing plan is is key in, in your patient's health. It's it is it is patient care. It's you know, a lot of guys are like, Ah, nursing, whatever. Yes, it's it's nursing and, you know, get over it. But it's patient care. It's it's the wellness of your patient. And that encompasses everything from brushing your patient's teeth if they can't do it themselves, to sponge bath to And all of this stuff, though it sounds like it's, it's a real pain and it's arduous and tedious work, will save you and your patient work and suffering over the long term.
1: Another question about
0: dressings.
1: Uh, do you cover them with, uh, like saran wrap or anything else?
2: So, no, I don't use any saran wrap. Um, I found, um, any kind of plastic, to be honest, is is something that, although it sounds a great idea, and I've actually debated it a couple times in my career in the desert, um, to keep a lot of the outside know, contaminants in, what I found is it is way better keeping the bad contaminants that are in the body in a dark, happy place where they'll grow and come very infectious very fast than it is at keeping any of the dirt and, uh, and other contaminants out of the wound. So, um, some Curlex is something that we've all carried for long periods of time it is an easy bandage to apply and wrap around there um, or some 4x4s four a nice bulky stack of those works great I've got no issues with maybe using some Coban to keep it on there like because I know that products doesn't stay very well and it kind of has some porousness to it um, that seems to be a pretty good job at keeping the bad out and but not encouraging the bad to grow inside but plastic saran wrap things like that are very so the
0: the exception to that is if you have some type of wound vac, mm-hmm. then you have a means to draw and and you know we all know that wound vacs are magic, and we also know that we only issue those is. mm-hmm. you can kind of jerry rig one in the field if you choose to do so, and uh
3: which is in the c p. g using your suction device yes yep. exactly
0: and uh. And there's a couple other good options out there. And, and so that's, that's the one exception. If you can provide that, that moon vac type <laughs> effect, then by all means. The other is um, we'll mention later with like honey dressing and stuff like that. Then, then you do use some sort of uh, non-porous cover over the bulky that, that goes on or the deformed the, the, the dressing.
3: So I definitely come from a generation where wound backs were not taught in the schoolhouse. And that was something that was very foreign to me. I, I know I'd seen them in hospitals before, but uh when I, on my last rotation, there was an FST co-located with us, the 629th, which was absolutely a luxury. And I, I had the opportunity to learn a lot. And of course, they had these, they had small uh wound back machines that were actually, you know, those no bigger than a ball cap. And they provided consistent 120 millimeters of mercury suction on a wound. And I, I didn't know much about them. Uh so I wanted to learn about them so I dug into them and I started applying them to the war wounds that came in and I was amazed at the uh the speed with which wounds healed it was significantly different and my again we approach this wound care with certainly like a hallmark of good wound care is infection prevention and mitigation and treatment and I forget what the statistic was but wound vax greatly reduced the likelihood of infection in a, in a wound so I'm I'm a very big fan of them as a ground truth medic I Use them every chance that I got, and I got a lot of great results from it.
0: Now I was introduced to them when I did a rotation up at the Baltimore Shock Trauma Center. That was the first time I'd seen them, and they were absolutely magical. And then uh, when one of our guys was wounded in Afghanistan, the FST had uh, you know used that, and and it yeah, I'm a big fan also. But you you have to have the equipment to do that, and and like you said, using your suction device if you can. If if you only have one patient and you can dedicate that to by all means, yeah. you know, do it,
2: it. it's definitely worth it. let it just goes back to Justin's measured plan ahead of time, right? So you've already written down your assess maybe you plan on accessing it, you plan on exploring the wound, you plan on irrigating it. Through all that process, you'll go, okay, how am I gonna manage this patient? That's how I'm gonna do it. And that's based on all the things we talked about, and then my expected next patient income. Uh, If I expect to receive a whole bunch of patients soon, I might not want to donate my entire suction device to this wound when I could simply manage it.
0: And you can always change your mind if you need to. You put the suction on and, oh, crap, something happened. Now we change plans.
1: At some point, we're going to have to
0: talk about antibiotics.
1: While still doing the right thing for my patients, How? can I approach this
0: antibiotic therapy? We treat empirically for the most part, so we make our best guess, whether it's aerobic, anaerobic, uh, where it is on the body, and then we look up. We use references. Uh, we, we use the, the uh, Sanfords or whatever whatever reference you want to do. We look it up on the app on our phone um, and, and Lexicomp or uh, Procrates or whatever, and you look up and, and then out of that list that you just looked up, you look at what you have. Because you're not going to have everything on the list. And uh, when I pack out, I pack out with that in mind. I can't carry everything. So uh, I, I may pick a drug that's second or third line of choice for certain things. But it's for many things. As opposed to the first line of choice for this one thing that I'm not even sure is going to happen so uh, that's the approach I use is uh, and, and we look at broad spectrums but um, you yeah, know those are great our references our, our T-maps war wound therapy all those are great references um, you gotta do your homework though what's endemic what, what's most likely what's most dangerous your kind of risk assessment there mm-hmm. when you plan on what you pack out with and then know 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 how to
3: use that when putting the CPG together we had a Conversation with some antimicrobial experts, uh, doctors, that was put together by Colonel Shackelford, and there were five of them. And then I was on the phone with them. Was kind of funny dynamic, but I really, I, I they had a conversation for about an hour, and they talked about a lot of different antibiotics, ones that I've never heard of, and the conversation was generally over my head. And at the end of it, they asked me, "Hey Justin, are you getting what you needed?" And I told them, "No, I wasn't." I said, "Could you guys do me a favor? Could you help me out? Maybe between five and ten antibiotics. Name them. Name me five to ten antibiotics that I can give to generally healthy human beings that are going to take care of ninety to ninety-nine percent of everything." And all of them agreed that they could do one better. That they could give me three to five. And in terms of their three preferences for being able to take care of everything, was uh, doxycycline, ertapenem, and Levofloxacin. They all pretty much agreed that in terms of going down the Levoquin road, that uh, we're not PO levofloxacin, it certainly doesn't have the efficacy of IV levofloxacin. So they erred on the side if you were going to bring the biggest gun possible, have IV levofloxacin. That requires some educating because that requires a certain protocol for administering that. But if we back up a little bit and we start to talk about doxy, we we all know that doxy is a very effective shotgun blast, takes care of a great many things, and it's prophylactic in many cases for malaria. And then we start going down, going down the road of erdipenem, which is our in bands. We're, we're very much comfortable with pushing in That's every 24 hour, over five minutes, IV drug uh, that most of us carry the reconstitutable version in an aid bags of some kind. So those are all very familiar drugs to us. And then we add this levofloxacin. You can you can do it and you can get pills of it. And I think maybe if you're going to just take it a step further, maybe you do bring the pills. Uh, but levofloxacin has been shown to be very effective against pseudomonas, which is certainly a very difficult bacteria once it takes hold to take care of. Uh, the last one that we went down the road of talking about is they were actually all very big fans of moxifloxacin, uh, Avalox. Uh, that is the antibiotic that's in commonly found in the combat pill pack. So the the conversation was very good in terms of finding applicable and commonly found antimicrobial therapy, antibiotic therapy for, wound, for wounds that many of us are familiar with. And they said beyond that, we're we're getting very much into the weeds, very much in the specifics of dealing with that one or 0.5% of the patient population who do have an infected wound. And all of those are actually outlined in the CPG. Uh, there's four of them that are specifically highlighted, and that's the cefazolin or Ancef, moxifloxacin or avilox, uh, levofloxacin, and the PO is the only one mentioned in the uh, uh, CPG, and then ertapenem or invans.
1: All right, very good. Um, is there anything else that we want to uh, want to
2: put out there? Uh, I think it's important to just kind of highlight again, Rick talked about it a little bit, doesn't talk about it. Um, a lot of us don't necessarily always carry our entire lab set, and that's that's totally normal and and understandable in different situations um, due to size and and calibration. But traveling without CPGs, traveling without docs documents that are like the sample guide or the other many guides that we have for our medicine is definitely something that's just not acceptable. Because um, when you do get in this pinch and you start have to get, do these plannings, without those, you don't really have a starting point. Um, and so it doesn't matter the tools, it matters your mind and your, your planning ability is really what's important. Um, and then a piece that we didn't cover a whole lot in any of this is that early prep of proper draping and, and, uh, staying sterile, which is, I think equally as important as the antibiotics you choose. You can't stay sterile while you do this or as sterile as possible. You can't recognize those, um, importance and admit to yourself when you make mistakes and breaks sterility, and go ahead and fix that. Um, you're going to have infection no matter how hard you try. So those are the pieces I think that are important to remember.
0: So remember infection equals more dead tissue. Infection actually destroys additional tissue that might have been safe. So with that in mind, um, should you get infection? Remember, you know, you've know you got options along with antibiotic treatment, redebreedment. You can use honey dressings, uh, sugar dressings, sugar dye, sugar and, and betadine, iodine mixed. These are different techniques that that
3: can help you with uh,
0: wound management there. I
3: guess if I was going to highlight anything additional for this is the context of being able to take care of a wound in an austere setting. We were having the conversation before this in terms of logistics. How do you pack out for this? And Packing out is absolutely preparing for it. What are some of the criteria in terms of packing out? Uh, And, you know, sort of the criteria, the way I approach what I'm packing out, because, again, bringing your lab set is awfully difficult when it's either your lab set or the Xbox that's getting brought. So I ask myself, what can get resupplied and where? How difficult is it to get resupplied? What can be improvised? Uh, And that is uh, what is replicatable, Uh, bandage, sterilization. And again, the cube space, of course, is always when when you're given one ISU uh, to take overseas per ODA, then obviously there are going to be some sacrifices made <laughs> most often with the medic and their tax set. But in terms of improvisation and what can be replicated with instead of bringing it, what can I get when I'm there and how can I make it, you know, about a 100 percent solution in terms of the austere setting? So we talk about one of the big things we talk about is cleaning versus disinfecting versus sterilizing. If I have some tools, and we all talk about that lobster pot, that large sterilizer that nobody really wants to bring, because it is large cube space, and that makes sense, we can uh, sterilize using dry heat. Dry heat is an oven. In the CPG, it outlines, for example, at 180 degrees centigrade, 356 degrees, which is reasonable for any home oven. Uh, you can put your tools in there for 30 minutes, and that is equal to sterility. It's definitely on the best... Yeah, it is. It is actually underneath the best criteria. We we follow the minimum, better, best. So that kind of speaks to how effective dry heat truly is on sterilizing. Underneath better, we start to as we start to go down from best to better, we start to go from bridging the gap between sterilizing something and disinfecting it. There's a very common chemical out there known as Cideks, which is in a lot of hospitals that is absolutely probably a step between disinfecting and sterilizing and that's obviously a chemical that you would be submerging your tools in the problem with it is, is it only lasts a minimum of 14 days once it's open but it is very effective uh, you only have to soak them for 60 minutes and then you have near sterility formaldehyde is also another one that has been used and that has actually been used at caches and in FSTs the advantage of these chemical sterilizers is you can not only you can go beyond sterilizing just metal tools and you can sterilize plastics so if you have one pleurovac, and by chance you have a couple of unicorns on your deployment where you're putting in multiple chest tubes, you can reuse that pleurovac by nearly sterilizing it in cydex or formaldehyde. Uh, formaldehyde you can buy in those small tablets. Uh, they they have a much longer shelf life than the cydex. Five uh, percent formaldehyde only needs to you only need to sub- submerge your instruments for an hour, preferably twelve to twenty four. Maybe more is better in this instance, but an hour is what the uh, studies have shown generally disinfect something. I want to just highlight one more that has always been talked about in austere settings, and that's bleach, right, hypochloride. A 5.25% use of hypochloride, it, it also makes a Dakin solution, which I won't belabor that. That's in the CPG as well, but that's absolutely a, a good solution to use to irrigate a wound with and you know, continue your prevention of infection strategy. So it's 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 a multi-use function. You can use it not only to irrigate and cleanse a wound, but you can also use it to disinfect your tools. Uh, it, it, I bring up dry heat. Uh, another application for dry heat is an iron in a hotel room. Uh, it doesn't actually have to be in a hotel room, but if you have an iron and you can iron uh, 100% cotton for five minutes on dry heat, that makes a sterile bandage. So pillowcase, torn to shreds, put on an ironing board, Dry iron for five solid minutes with that that high heat applied to it uh, will come out with you'll come out with a sterile bandage that you can use to pack wounds and do dressing changes.
0: Now you mentioned dry heat um, when when you're deployed, uh, most most countries you can find a pressure cooker. So you don't as far as the lobster pot, I mean that is a pressure cooker. So you got to look at adjusting your so if you have less psi, you need more time. Time, temperature, and pressure are what uh, what counts as far as sterilizing a pack. So you could use a pressure cooker and just adjust your time.
3: Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. That is uh, the technique for using a pressure cooker is also in the CPG, and it's under the better. So I think Justin brought up a great point that I I like to highlight a lot with the guys is
2: you can use things like pillowcases and do the quality um, ironing there and, and make sure that you you, you get yourself a, a nice sterile. Bandage. Um, in that, you'll also probably likely have bed sheets, which make for really good drapes. So, just because you didn't originally plan to do surgery and you're in an environment that you're now finding yourself doing it, you can start to take a lot of normal household items
3: and be prepared to do this uh, properly. Yeah, and the, and the bandage, that very much circles back to, I, I guess, the overall philosophy for bandages. And we talked a lot about dressing a wound. It, what are your goals of addressing? And that that's sort of what you want to look at when you know we were talking about the Saran wrap thing, uh, vacuum. The overall goals of addressing is very much to provide a barrier to the outside world. Uh, the we talked about the the wicking effect that we have on that, which generally leads down the road of a mechanical debridement if it's not too infected and there isn't a barrier of pus between the bandage and the wound. And then and then yeah, and then the mechanical debridement of it. Uh, that that's sort of our goal for maintaining that infection management, mitigation, uh, and prevention uh, that we want to use with addressing.
1: For today's podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our is waiting for you.